Magazines and Monsters, episode 58, Strange Adventures number 9 from 1951. <clears throat> hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Magazines and Monsters, and it is January, which means it is hashtag sci-fi comics month, and... Last January, I talked about a really cool DC sci-fi comic, and I've really, really loved digging into these. So I'm going to talk about another one here today, and I'm going to have a guest on that I've actually talked to a bunch of times, but never on my show. So welcome, Ron, from the Fantastic Comic Fan Podcast. How are you, man? Billy, I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I've been waiting to have the opportunity to talk comics with you. It's been a while since we've been taping anything so really it's, it's gonna be a fantastic taping i look forward to discussing it with you yeah so dc sci-fi i can tell you that i had some single issues i think they were reprints of a lot of these you know uh golden and silver age stories that maybe came out in the 1970s so i have some of those but it wasn't until i got the app and started digging into some other things here that i got to uh, check out some of these like really uh you know uh, golden age here 1951 uh, the book we're going to talk about today so what about uh, sci-fi in dc comics for you you know i like the dc stuff and i hadn't uh done too much of their sci-fi stuff just because the app is so limited to you know the amount of content they have on the app i think even with this one there's only like the first 10 or 12 issues and then it jumps forward to other things. But I really like about this issue, which I can't say the same with some of the other golden age type stuff, is that this one actually has all the stories right there. It's not just the lead story. You get all the great stories on this. And like I keep telling other people, you need to read stuff that you don't normally read. There's golden age, silver age, and like this golden age, that are fantastic reads. If read within the context of the times, there's so much great content out there. You owe it to yourself to go discover some of these hidden gems. Yeah, I think a lot of people would be surprised at how much they would like these if they'd give them a shot. Because, I, I mean, I don't want to say they were ahead of their time, but some of these stories have some really good content and really good messages in them too. And I don't mean a message that's you know beating you over the head with their you know thoughts or ideas, but. You know, they always seem to slip in something really cool or a little bit ahead of their time into these, right? Exactly. And in this particular case, this is kind of a, a weird comic book because you would think that, well, first it's DC's first science fiction comic book. And you would think science fiction would come in more near the Sputnik age at the uh, late 70s, I'm sorry, the late 50s. And this is right in like 1952, I think. And this is also right in the middle, 51, I'm sorry. This is also right in when the big horror phase is coming into, you know, prominence. And for DC to launch, you know, this instead of something, not necessarily like an AC, but more of a spooky type thing is kind of unique in this. And I really like the story. And these another thing about these Golden Age, and this one in particular, you get to see artists, in this case, Carmine Infantino, when they're just mm. starting off in the industry. Carmine only been drawing for maybe six or seven years. And you know Carmine, I know Carmine, but any new reader to comic books, you gotta do Carmine Pantino. Billy, you would agree with me. We could, we could sit here and talk hours about Carmine Pantino and the impact he had on the comic industry. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. Huge, huge influence on the industry. And I'll tell you what, I came to really uh, love and appreciate his work when I bought a trade of uh, Silver Age uh, Flash Volume 1. And there's a ton of his work in there. And it's incredible. He, you, you know, we have like 90 years of comic books and it's really hard to keep track of all the great, fantastic creators that are out there because there's, you know, you know, we, we think about Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and some people, you know, even though Carmine Infantino did stuff straight through into the Bronze Age, that's still, that's like 40 years ago and people don't, who's Carmine? You know, and you, oh, he had a, he, he's what, you know, not so much in this, but you can, but Carmine Infantino, as he grew in prominence, you could look at the comic book and say, that's Carmine Infantino, just like you could look at a Kirby comic or a Ditko comic, but that's Dirk, Ditko and Kirby. He has such a unique, original, fantastic style. Mm, yeah, for sure. So, yeah, so we're going to be talking about Strange Adventures number nine from 1951. Uh, and this is a, a, a pretty awesome cover here, which we can talk about in a second. And it's a, a Carmine Infantino cover here. And what do you think of this cover here? This looks pretty good. It's, you know, and, and fans have to realize once upon a time, there wasn't a thing as comic book shops. And probably at this time, I don't even think there was really spinner racks. And there was hundreds of comic books coming out every month. And covers had to really stand out to catch an eye. But this is a very eye-catching cover because the background is very spacey, lots of black. In the front, you have the Captain Comet and him and his a civilian identity and that's the forefront and they got these creepy looking aliens also in the back so it's a really eye-popping comic and i believe if you go back into like the late 60s early 70s when you know carmen Infantino became in charge of dc comics and he could you could see that he had a great eye these are how the covers should be this is how you make the cover to stand out and if you look at some of the bronze age of dc they have some really great, great covers. And I really think it comes from Carmen's ability as an artist. This is what we need to do. This is what a cover should really look like to pop and stand out. It's a great cover. Don't you think, Billy? Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's like you said, it's got the space background with the planets and the stars, these two outlines, these creepy aliens, and then like a city, you know, skyline at yes. his feet. Oh, yeah, fantastic. And it does the, the logo, and it says Amazing Science Fiction Tales at the top. And it reminds me of, you know, a lot of the pulp science fiction books that were out, you know, in the, the 40s and 50s. You know, and, and again, it's like you would think that this would be in the age of Sputnik. And this was a really daring comic book for DC. And you were talking about that really bold, strange adventures. You're right. That logo itself is eye-popping. And in this particular case, it's I think it's like an oranges and the highlights are yellow and blue. And it's funny because mm. this, this Strange Adventures logo ran for 201 issues for 17 years, exactly like that. And it's really unusual for a comic book to have the same logo for 17 years. It's just that I, I'm glad you picked this because I didn't give it as much credit until I was like, oh, wow, this is Strange Adventures. I'm, I always looked at the Strange Adventures you know, during the Bronze Age when it introduced Dead Man and Alan Milan and that type of stuff. Okay, this is some great Golden Age comics. This is a good pick. Yeah, and I, it does have a little, uh, you know, uh, uh, not rectangular, but square, uh, you know, cover blurb here. It's just down in the bottom corner says, Tomorrow's Man of Destiny has a dual identity. 
and it says read the origin of Captain Comet. So yeah, this is his first appearance in origin story here. So yeah, well, why don't we dive right on in here? Yeah, so we yeah. got John John Broom, right, with the script. Although when I saw the name, I thought, who's this guy? Because it's signed Edgar Ray Merritt. So I yes. had to look that up. <laughs> and who is John Broom since you're the host of your podcast here? You know, he, you know, he, he, he's a he's again, he's one of the golden age art or writers that people really should look up because he did a lot of iconic stuff, you know, not just mm -hmm. in this, but in other comic books. Yeah, uh, I love his Silver Age Green Lantern. Yeah, yeah. he co-created, you know, Green Lantern with uh, Gil Kane, mm -hmm. another great distinctive artist who went straight, I believe, yeah, right into the 80s, an artist that you could look at and go, that's a Gil Kane art. I, you know, and I don't know about you, but as I've gotten older, I've really gotten to appreciate some of these artists from the golden age and silver age and like wow they did some really innovative fantastic stuff back then mm, yeah you're not kidding like that first page i love how you open that you know page up here and it says captain comet and it shows a comet flying through the sky and that's the the name is in the the you know the the com uh, comet itself there as it's flying through space and then you know it does like a little page here where you know, it shows a machine, like it almost shows a scene that's going to happen later on in the comic there to kind of set things up with a, a little paragraph of setup there, right? Yes, yes. And mm -hmm. it's very unusual to have the origin of a character right in the first issue. Because, you know, back then, they really didn't do too many origin stories, especially right, you know, from the gate, you know, right from the gate of the comic book being introduced. And fans, you know, of at least things, you got to remember, this is a different era. There's a lot of captions, a lot of a lot of words. There's such things as, hey, thought balloons, which there used to be a lot in comic books, but you know what? It doesn't cramp the eye style or the, the, the art. It doesn't cramp the art. It flows nicely. And it really is a, it's a fun read. I like this comic book. Yeah. So what did you think of this one, too? Because they, you know, it, it starts out with a little bit of a kind of Superman-ish origin of, you know, um, you know, this this guy, Adam Blake, but he's he comes there's a, a comet that goes by the, the earth here and people are like, oh, it's as bright as day. The comet, we've never seen it before. And then all of a sudden there's a, a caption box that says, and at that same night, the comet appeared. A baby was born in small city and humble surroundings. And <laughs> I don't know if the, the comet just came by and gave the baby the powers or or what happened here. But there's some neat artwork there with the, <laughs> the mom laying in the bed with the little baby there. That's, yeah, that's cute. <laughs> and, and, and for an origin story, it's kind of unique. I can't remember, you know, anything yeah. like this, you know, come together. But as he grows up, you know, he learns to play, for example, the clarinet, and he's playing Mozart perfectly. And then, you know, he goes to college, and he's a great linebacker, and, you know, all this stuff. And he grows up to be a very lonely man. It's kind of, to me, reminiscent of the uh, Silver Age, I'm sorry, the Golden Age character, Mr. Terrific. The original oh. Mr. Mr. Terrific, because he had basically the same thing. He had graduated from college when he was really young, and by the time he was in his 20s, he decided, life is over with me. I don't know what I'm going to do. And all of a sudden, that's how he became a superhero. He said, you know, I, this is what I'm going to do with my life. And it kind of reminded me a little bit about that kind of um, vibe to it. Yeah, and I love how, too, like you said, he's at college here, and he's kind of an outcast, and there he sees you know there's a, a it says then in his senior year at an outing a singular event occurred and it shows one of his classmates 
uh, almost fall down a hill. And he almost uses like a, a telekinetic powers. They call it mental force to save her from getting hurt or even killed. And he's wondering like, hey, what's going on here? So he goes to see this guy, Professor Zachro. And what did you think of this? How about how he calls him a mutant? I thought that was interesting. Yeah, because, you know, we're so used to, you know, things being mutant right now. And, you know, back then as a mute, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how, you know, kind of decided to use mutants as a, you know, a catchphrase. But, you know, I believe, you know, if you want to use the mutant thing, he's kind of like the first mutant in DC Comics. And probably the first reference to mutant. I haven't found anything else. I mean, retroactively, they made Prince, I'm sorry, uh, Namor, the Submariner, a mutant. But I think this is actually the first mutant in comic books that actually from the get-go. Hey, did you see anything differently than me? Or maybe you did a little more research or something different? No, I was really shocked by it just simply because, number one, I didn't even think the, the term mutant in comics went back this far. And I because it, yes. Yeah, in my brain, mutant, I always go right to X-Men, and I'm thinking, okay, that was like, what, like 1963 maybe? So that, yeah. this is 12 years before that. So this is actually, yeah, as far as I know, I mean, maybe there was like a, a one-off reference in you know something in the golden age where it said about somebody being a mutant but otherwise like this to me this is it this is like kind of the first mutant superhero you know and, and while we're looking at the profession i'm looking at the art also and it's like wow this is some you know for the golden age if you like look at the early like how i don't know like detective comics or action comics the art is less sophisticated and you know now you're getting into the you know the early 50s and this is some really great art you know mm. people are, a lot of times are thinking you know some of the golden age art is wonky but this is comment and kino with some great fantastic art it's really eye-catching even the way he draws it i love it yeah in this issue yeah, I had forgotten to mention uh, before we got rolling into the actual story that it's, yeah, Carmine Infantino pencils and Bernard Sachs on uh, inks, which I really enjoy him as an inker as well because I've seen quite a few times he inked a lot of these sci-fi stories that uh, I've uh, glommed onto, like I said, in the in the reprints that I have or uh, some uh, on the app here as well. I really enjoy uh, his work too. I Yeah, see, I, you're up on me on that one because I usually am really good with giving inkers especially credit because you know a lot of times it's like oh it's a penciler and they don't give and the writer and they don't give the anchor credit and to me the whole creative team is just as important as you know, they should all be as a whole and not just hey the writer and the artist the anchor and, you know they all come together you know, to make a comic book, and too often people will just forget about the anchor. So yeah. I, I didn't realize he, he did this issue, actually. Yeah, so it's like, you know, it's not a very overly... Uh, uh, like, I shouldn't say that. It is it is a good story. I do like it quite a bit, but it's a little simplistic. You know, it's just, you know, this guy figures out he has these powers, and this uh, professor says, yeah, you're, you know, a mutant, this, like, future man that, you know, is going to come one day and you're just kind of a, a little bit early. And then <laughs> these gangster types try to uh, take the uh, <laughs> machine in this uh, professor's uh, lab, but uh, he uh, stops them. Isn't it pretty neat? Little yeah. Story there? Yeah. It, you know, and the story itself is probably, it's only 10 pages, which is typical mm -hmm. of the times. It's really, 
you know, yeah. not, you know, we're used to comic books being a lot longer, but in 10 pages, you got to give the writer cr credit for putting a great story, eye-catching, fun story right in with uh, this comic book. I, I'm going to actually go back and actually read some more of the Strange Adventures. Now, what's funny is that Captain Comet was in the issue for about four years. He ran from this uh, Strange Adventures from like issues 9 through 49. And my introduction, original introduction to Captain Comet was 22 years later in Secret Society of Supervillains, mm -hmm. number two. And that's what was my introduction to the Secret Society of Supervillains. And he was reintroduced into the DC mythos by Jerry Conway, which is another iconic writer that people should, you know, know, know about and understand and see who, who, you know, who he is. Mm. Um, you know, I'm looking here at, yeah, you know, uh, but our sex was doing, uh, inks all the way straight through into the silver age. In fact, he, he helped contribute to the, uh, uh, first appearance of the Brave of the Justice League and Brave and the Bold. So yeah. he, he had a he had a great career. It, this mm -hmm. yeah, this is and, and and like all these golden age books, they're done in one. It's complete, it's completely all done. But at least you go, hey, I don't know about you, but I got done with this and like if I was a reader back then, yeah, I'm looking for Strange Adventures number 10, you know, to see mm -hmm. what's going on. And uh I was doing my research and it was funny because the issue before this so it's the start of the great gorilla craze. <laughs> that was that issue. It. And and nobody really understands this, but it was it's kind of like the way comic books were run back then, you don't go to a comic book shop. They would go to the newsstands and the pharmacies and the mom and pop stores. And they would go out, it would like take six months to figure out how much a comic book sold and how well it was. Well, DC was like. With this gorilla issue, they're like, huh, we had a spike in sales. And over the next, I don't know how many years, every time DC put out a gorilla or monkey cover, that thing <laughs> sold like hotcakes, Billy. I'm not lying. And it got, and I and I remember reading it somewhere that they actually had to put a limit on how many times the gorillas could appear in a comic book. And that's where you got, that's why you got Gorilla Grodd. That's why you got um, Titano the Super 8 over in Superman. And another interesting thing, if you notice, a lot of these comic books going into the Silver 8 had a lot of purple also because they thought yeah. purple sold better comics. It's just so wonky back then, you know, how comic books sold and whatever, you know, silly things like the, the Great Gorilla Cage craze went on for a very long time. You know, do you, you got time to briefly talk about a little bit about the rest of the, the, the um, comic book? Yeah. So, you know, we we're just focusing on that first story. But man, I'll tell you what, when I kept swiping through to look at the other stories in this issue, it was like a murderer's row of creators here. Like the second story is called Push Button Paradise, Gardner Fox, Alex Toth and Bernard Sachs. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, here we here we go. Two stories in and those are the creators. Like, yeah, that's crazy and, good. you know, and Gardner Fox, I had back, I think, in June, Jennifer DeRoss. Uh, mm -hmm. great, great person. She wrote the biography about, about Gardner Fox. And mm -hmm. Gardner Fox introduced the uh, Batman utility belt. He wrote mm -hmm. some of the very first Batman stories and detectives, which I didn't know about. And Gardner Fox's fingerprints are all over DC. And it's like, oh, this is a really cool little, you know, 
little push button paradise is the name of it with Gardner Fox in there and uh, Alex Toth is a thing people look up Alex Toth and again he had a distinctive style this is so different than even Carmen Pantino it's a great art style I like that and then you go farther on you got you know Murphy Anderson in the last story you got Bob Ostner doing another story and you're right it's like all these great iconic creators all came together in this if you want a sample of some of the best golden age and going into silver age creators this is a perfect kind of book to look at to look at these creators yeah edmund hamilton one of the writers erwin hasten like there was just like <laughs> yeah this this book from start to finish is just packed with uh, awesome creators that you know hey you may not know and if you don't you know you should take a peek at them and uh, see what they have to offer right yeah because you know a lot of these creators back then they were they were the foundation of what DC comics were were made over the years. And plus, these people influenced creators later on, you know, especially like Alex Toth, who did stuff straight into the 70s, and Carmen Antino, Murphy Anderson, all these creators, you know, that, that came after them owe a debt of added uh, a dote of gratitude to these creators for help, you know, for launching their careers and giving them the kind of stuff. You know, I was just looking. They only have the first 10 issues of Strange Adventures in here, and I don't know exactly why they stopped that. And I'm, I'm kind of disappointed because we only get the first two episodes of Captain Comet. And I mm -hmm. and I hope DC, you know, will do a better job of archiving these Golden Age and some of the Silver Age stuff that's not in their archives because these things, not only are they fun reads, they deserve to be read, and these creators deserve to some recognition and acknowledgement for their contributions in the golden age. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'll, I would love for them to come out with, you know, a, a decent quality uh, paperback volumes of strange adventures. I'd be all over them. I'd buy everyone, you yeah. know, like Marvel does with their epics, just start, you know, start putting them out. I will love that. Cause this, this content is hard to find. It is. And DC's put out some really wonky omnibuses and archiving some, not archive, but putting some wonky omnibuses. I just was looking through that, you know, they recently did three volumes of the House of Mystery Bronze Age title. I'm like, oh, you know, there's a there's an audience for that. There's got to be an audience for some of these Golden Age stuff, you know, but DC's going through some weird publishing times, you know, behind the scenes and they're not. Yeah. They're, they're I, I, I have faith in DC. This is the first time I can say since probably the Rebirth Initiative like six years ago that I'm looking excitedly forward to what DC's got coming and that maybe they're going to get their acts better together. Not that they're putting out great comics, but I think they can put even better comics out and do a better job of not only this current comic market, but these older issues from the Silver Age and especially these Golden Age because DC really has great golden age comic books and they need to be appreciated better. Yeah, definitely. They need to, to work on their archives for sure. But uh, yeah, that would be a, a good by me. Cause again, I, I still buy some single issues now and again, but mostly just to finish off runs. So if I get my hands on, you know, something that's a trade for, like I said, a series like this, that ran for, what did it run for 23 years? I think, you know, yes. good luck, uh, good luck getting all those single issues because especially these older ones are going to be so pricey. So yeah, put them in a trade and, you know, make it nice and put a good uh, retail on it and uh, give people a discount to like pre-order or something and I'd be all over them. I would too. You know, Billy, this is a 
I love talking about comic books, especially stuff that I am not familiar with. I appreciate you bringing me on and talking about this. I I can't express how much I enjoy this comic book. I'm actually going to go back through and read the first eight issues of Strange Adventures because now I'm in a DC Golden Age um, uh, frame of mind is what I'm saying. So, but thank you for having me. This is this is a great read. I really like this. Thanks. Yeah, why don't we wrap up here? So uh, why don't uh, you uh, tell everybody listening here what your show is all about and where they can find you? I am the Fantastic Comic Fan. I normally do a lot of uh, digital comics that you can read on a digital reader, but I also do a lot of indie, indie comics. I do a lot of Kickstarter campaigns. And lately I've been able to, and I told Billy this off uh, Mike before that I feel like I've sold my soul to a devil and nobody told me like maybe Mephistos has been you know uh, <laughs> coming to me in my dream and made some deal and hasn't told me about it yet but I've been able to snag some great creators on my show I've had I just taped Bill Hester recently I've had Ron Mars on my podcast Keith Champagne Daryl Banks and I feel like I'm bragging about the creators but I was I was able it's not that I want to bring these guys on, Billy. And said, I want to bring these guys guys on and talk about some really unique stuff that they don't normally talk about. It was so cool. And then I'll wrap it up and stop cracking about my podcast. Bad Key Champagne on. He went to Cougar School. And it was really cool listening to him tell a story about arm wrestling, a 73-year-old Joe Kubert and losing the arm wrestling contest. And that is a fantastic, <laughs> yeah. And that's the kind of stuff that I, I really like to try to pull out of some of these creators instead of talking, you know, about stuff that they talk about over and over again. Let's talk about something different, find fun stuff and new ways to talk about things. Again, Billy, I'm rambling on. I apologize. Anytime you want me to come on the podcast, you know I will come on. I enjoy talking to you. Thanks again for having me. All right. Thanks for being on, Ron. Yeah, so that's going to wrap us up. And uh, I'm going to get out of here and then come back in a minute to wrap up the show. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Showing signs of stress and fatigue. Reaction time down 9 to 12 percent. Associational rating norm minus 3. That's much too low a rating. He's becoming irritable and quarrelsome, yet he refuses to take rest and rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. Now, he has that right, but we found... Crewman's right ends where the safety of the ship begins. Now, that man will go ashore on my orders. What's his name? James Kirk. Enjoy yourself, Captain. It's an interesting planet. I believe you'll find it quite pleasant. Very much like your Earth.
Warp drive out. Reflector shields down. Transporter under repair. We are on emergency impulse power. How long to repair warp drive? At least one solar day. At our present rate of consumption, we'll exhaust our impulse power long before then. It's gaining on us, sir. Take evasive action, Mr. Sulu. I told you I am in command here, and I will give the orders, Captain. We are going to turn and attack. Not with my ship, you don't. Mr. Spock, relieve Commodore Decker immediately. That's a direct order. You can't relieve me, and you know it. According to regulations... Blast regulations. Mr. Spock, I order you to assume command on my personal authority as captain of the Enterprise. Commodore Decker, you are relieved of command. I don't recognize your authority to relieve me. You may file a formal protest with Starfleet Command, assuming we survive to reach Astora Base. But you are relieved. Commodore, I do not wish to place you under arrest. You wouldn't dare. You're bluffing. Vulcans never bluff. must turn command over to somebody else. Mother, when I was commissioned, I took an oath to carry out responsibilities which were clearly and exactly specified. Any competent officer can command this ship. Only you can give your father the blood transfusions that he needs to live. Any competent officer can command this ship under normal circumstances. The circumstances are not normal. We are carrying over 100 valuable Federation passengers. We're being pursued by an alien ship. We're subject to possible attack. There has been murder and attempted murder on board. I cannot dismiss my duties. Duty? Your duty is to your father. I know. This must take precedence. If I could give the transfusion without loss of time or efficiency, I would. Sarek understands my reason. Well, I don't. It's not human. Oh, that's not a dirty word. You're human, too. Let that part of you come through. Your father's dying. Mother, how can you have lived on Vulcan so long, married a Vulcan, raised a son on Vulcan, without understanding what it means to be a Vulcan? Well, if this is what it means, I don't want to know. It means to adopt a philosophy, a way of life, which is logical and beneficial. We cannot disregard that philosophy merely for personal gain. No matter how important that gain might be. Nothing is as important as your father's life. Can you imagine what my father would say if I were to agree, if I were to give up command of this vessel, jeopardize hundreds of lives, risk interplanetary war, all for the life of one person? When you were five years old and came home stiff-lipped, anguished, because the other boys tormented you, saying that you weren't really Vulcan. I watched you, knowing that inside, the, the human part of you was crying. And I cried too. There must be some part of me in you some part that I still can reach. 
being Vulcan is more important to you than you'll stand there speaking rules and regulations from Starfleet and Vulcan philosophy and, and let your father die. And, and I'll hate you for the rest of my life. Mother. We'll go to him now, please. I cannot. Physical laws simply cannot be ignored. Existence cannot be without them. What do you mean, Spock? I mean, Doctor, that we are faced with a staggering contradiction. The tranquilizer you created should have been effective. It would have been effective anywhere else. Exactly. Doctor, in your opinion, what killed Mr. Chekhov? A piece of lead in his body. Wrong. His mind killed him. Come on, Spock, if you've got the answer, tell us. Physical reality is consistent with universal laws. Where the laws do not operate, there is no reality. All of this is unreal. What do you mean, unreal? I examined Chekhov. He's dead. But you made your examination under conditions which we cannot trust. We judge reality by the response of our senses. Once we are convinced of the reality of a given situation, we abide by its rules. We judge the bullets to be solid, the guns to be real. Therefore, they can kill. Chekhov is dead because he believed the bullets would kill him. He may indeed be dead. We do not know. But we do know that the Melkotians created the situation. If we do not allow ourselves to believe that the bullets are real, they cannot kill us. Exactly. I know the bullets are unreal. Therefore, they cannot harm me. We must all be as certain as you are, Mr. Spock, if we're to save our lives. Precisely. That's not possible. There'd always be some doubt. The smallest doubt would be enough to kill you. Concentrate your phaser fire at what appears to be its head. Concentrate it. Maintain it. It is definitely resistant, but it can be hurt. If it can be hurt, it can be killed. Mr. Spock? Gentlemen, if you'll examine your charts, please. I last located the creature in the area marked added 26, moving at bearing 201. This particular group will move out beyond that area in all directions in an effort to surround it, possibly capture it. Your orders are shoot to kill. Protect yourself at all times. Commander Giotto, disperse your search parties. Aye, aye, sir. Lewis, Vincy, take your men out. Mr. Spock. Capture it. I don't recall giving any such order. You did not, sir. I merely thought that if the opportunity arose... I will lose no more men. The creature will be killed on sight, and that's the end of it. Very well, sir. Mr. Spock. I want you to assist Scotty in maintaining that makeshift circulating pump. I, I beg your pardon, sir. You heard me. It's vital that we keep that reactor in operation. Your scientific knowledge... It is not needed there, sir. Mr. Scott has far more knowledge of nuclear reactors than I do. You're aware of that. Mr. Spock, you are second in command. This will be a dangerous hunt. Either one of us, by himself, is expendable. Both of us are not. Captain, 
There are approximately 100 of us engaged in this search against one creature. The odds against you and I both being killed are 2,228.7 to 1. 2,228.7 to 1? Those are pretty good odds, Mr. Spock. And they are, of course, accurate, Captain. Of course. Well, I hate to use the word, but logically, with those kind of odds, you might as well stay. But please stay out of trouble, Mr. Spock. That is always my intention, Captain. Well, I don't know if I like your tone. It's most challenging. Is that what you're doing, challenging me? I object to you. I object to intellect without discipline. I object to power without constructive purpose. Oh, Mr. Spock, you do have one saving grace after all. You're ill-mannered. Okay, everybody, that's going to wrap up this episode. Once again, I want to thank Ron for being on the show. Good guy. Definitely check out his show, The Fantastic Comic Fan. You know, he really dives into uh, a lot of the digital stuff and then uh, has some uh, indie creators on there as well. So definitely give his show a listen. Uh, He updates usually uh, once or twice a week at least, some weeks even heavier than that. But he's usually on a pretty good schedule. So a lot of content there. So definitely uh, give his show a shot. All right, thanks for listening, everybody.